You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. It's um, a fun time of getting to read the Bible together. Um, we are reading Acts chapter 17. Um, get your Bibles out or it'll be behind me and we can get started. All right. So Acts chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's creeds, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. As a result, many of them believed and did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with their instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aporegos 
and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole world. And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Some of them was Donis, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thanks, Christina. It's a bit of a challenge on the way through Acts with all the names of the towns and the people and uh, these strange ancient Greek places. Uh, so you're doing a great job. Uh, there's an outline of my sermon on the welcome card that Alex mentioned earlier where all the announcements were. So if you want to look that up, uh, some of you might find that useful. Uh, please have Acts chapter 17 open and uh, please pray with me. Father, you know uh, all of my weaknesses and limitations. Uh, Father, please uh, take me up and use me by the power of your spirit despite those uh, weaknesses. Uh, help me to speak clearly and faithfully and in a way that, um, that points people to our Lord Jesus. And Father, you know the weaknesses and limitations of each one who's here. Our tendency for our minds to wander to be inattentive to your word. So please, Father, help us uh, to listen well this afternoon as you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I do wonder, at its core, uh, what you think Christianity is kind of fundamentally about. What's it primarily about? I'll give you two options. You might have heard them before. Is it about good advice or good news? Good advice or good news? Uh, to be honest, uh, I was born and raised in a Christian home. I was taught the Bible from when I was very little, uh, taught to say my prayers at bedtime, taken along to church most weeks. I remember trying to get out of going to church and pretending I was sick and all those kind of things because it was like every week do we have to go to church? You know, but I, I was born and raised in this house, taught about Jesus, 
Dad was the head of the Sunday school. I honestly can't remember a time where I didn't believe in God. And yet, honestly, I didn't understand the real message of Christianity. I thought Christianity, at its heart, was about good advice. By good advice, I mean that Christianity, most fundamentally, uh, was a set of rules or tips uh, for me to follow. It was about, all about the profound moral teachings of Jesus. It was about some ancient wisdom to live by. It was about a whole lot of inspirational examples in the Bible for me to be like and follow. Well, that's what I thought growing up. I was conscious, as I've just prayed, of my weakness and limitations, the ways in which I was rebelling against my parents and probably against God. And so how did I treat Christianity? Essentially like a religious self-help program. I had a 10-point plan. I I did my best to follow this self-help program grounded in the teachings of the Bible. And of course, Jesus was there, but he was a bit like my spiritual life coach cheering me on from the sidelines Go, Aaron, go. You know, that kind of... That's how, that's how I thought. Christianity was good advice. It, it wasn't until I was 16 that I realised that Christianity wasn't about good advice at all. It was about good news. It wasn't advice about what I needed to do to try and rustle up all my strength and make improvements to my life, right? maybe with a little bit of help from Jesus. It was wonderful good news about what God had done in Jesus. But not just to make a few kind of tweaks to my life, to make me a little bit more respectable, but to completely transform my life and to turn my life completely upside down. Christianity is about good news, not good advice. But of course, we only really experience this news of what God has done in Jesus to be good news if we respond to it in the way that God calls us to. There are lots of different ways to respond to news. Uh, In Acts chapter 17, the second half, we see that Paul declares the good news of what God has done. I would summarise that news as the one God who created the one humanity has appointed one man as judge. And that calls for one response. But there are four responses to the news of what God has done in Acts 17. There are those who reject the good news of the gospel. There are those who eagerly receive the good news. There are those who ridicule the good news. And then there are those who repent and believe the good news. That's the response that the good news of what God has done in Jesus calls for, to repent and believe the good news. So why don't we look first at verses 1 to 9. Uh, where we see that Paul, Silas and Timothy, they're in Thessalonica, and the main response to the gospel in Thessalonica is to reject the gospel. I Take a look there. If you've got Acts 17 open in verses 1 to 3, uh, you'll see again that Paul, Silas and Timothy start their ministry in Thessalonica in the synagogue. So once more, we see, you know, Paul, maybe way back in Acts chapter 9, Jesus sent him out in particular to share the gospel with non-Jewish people, with Gentiles, and yet every time he reaches a major city, he goes first to the synagogue because he has this deep conviction that the Jews as God's chosen, special covenant people, they should hear the good news about Jesus first. And notice in verses 2 and 3 how Luke describes Paul's ministry in the synagogue. Notice the, the verbs there. He says Paul reasons, he explains, and he proves. 
I wonder if that's how you would describe gospel ministry. It seems quite mind-focused, doesn't it? Reasoning, explaining, proving. Uh, It's really important that the gospel penetrates the deepest desires of people's hearts. But in the end, that's where uh, real change happens. But still, sometimes I think we lose sight of the fact that Christianity does have to make sense to people. Sometimes people think, oh, to become a Christian is to become irrational or unreasonable. But you'll notice throughout the book of Acts that Paul wants to make it really clear that it is absolutely reasonable to be a Christian. It makes sense. You don't have to kind of check your brain at the door to choose to follow Jesus. And notice at the end of verse 2 how Paul reasons with these people in the synagogue. He knows that they're familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, He knows that in the end it's God's word that will change people's hearts, not his special arguments that are really sophisticated. So what does he do? He reasons with them from the scriptures. Not just kind of trotting out abstract philosophical arguments to them. And we see in verse 3 that Paul's focus in doing that is always on Jesus. Well, what's Paul trying to persuade people of? It's not to persuade people to vote a particular way in the upcoming state election. You know, that's not his focus. Or to adopt a particular perspective on climate change. He's not trying to persuade people of a particular subset of theology or a particular view on baptism. He's not trying to persuade people to get on board with a new take on LGBTIQ plus issues. All these things are very important for us to discuss. But they're never central for Paul. For Paul, his focus is always on Jesus. He's trying to persuade people about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, God's King. The King who came, you'll see there in verse 3, to suffer and die for people's sins on the cross and who's been raised again to new life so that they can have the hope of eternal life. That's the news that Paul proclaims in Thessalonica. Notice it's not good advice. It's news of what God has done in sending Jesus, his son, into the world to suffer and die for sins, to be raised again to life. How do people respond? Well, in verse 4, thankfully, some people believe the message. Three groups of people. First, you'll see that some Jews were persuaded about what Paul was saying. They thought, yeah, Jesus really is the Messiah, God's king. But only some Jews. You notice there that a large number of God-fearing Greeks were persuaded. That's interesting. That's the pattern throughout the book of Acts. These uh, Gentiles who had turned away from their Greco-Roman gods to worship the God of Israel, that's the God-fearing Greeks, uh, they were much more receptive to the gospel than the Jews. I wonder why that is. I think it's at least partly because in the first century, many, if not most Jews, had slipped into thinking that the core message of their faith was good advice. They thought that our faith is about a set of rules that you have to obey. It's about a set of traditions or customs that you have to observe. And maybe if you do a good enough job of ticking all the boxes, uh, one day God might accept you. But you can't really be sure. That was the dominant kind of Jewish take to the matters of their faith in the first century. So they really stubbornly resisted the idea that God saved people as a gift. It's about grace. 
It's a gift we receive by trusting in Jesus. They resisted the gospel because they were among those who were determined. Maybe you're a bit like this today. You know your life is a bit of a mess. It's got some room for improvement. Uh, But let me tell you, this is you speaking, if my life's going to change, it's going to be because I've worked hard. It's going to be because I've cleaned myself up. I've picked myself up by my bootstraps and sorted my life out. It's quite humbling to do the reverse and say, I've tried to sort it out, but I can't. And so the Jews, by and large, struggled with the gospel. So there were some Jews and a large number of these Greeks. And third, notice there, uh, quite a few prominent women believed the gospel. This is one of the interesting things about the the church in the first century. These days, uh, Christianity sometimes has a reputation for being oppressive towards women, restrictive of women. And we do, of course, have to own the fact that horrible things have been done to women, supposedly in the name of Jesus throughout history. I'm definitely not denying that. But in the first century, women loved Christianity. Women loved Jesus. They loved the church. They flocked to Christianity. Some of the greatest numbers of people to become Christians were women. Because in Jesus and his people, they knew that they'd found a a kind of level of dignity and worth and honour and value that they hadn't found anywhere else in society. And I pray that that would be increasingly the case for women here at DPC or the women in our local community. I pray that they'd be drawn to our Lord Jesus. So a bunch of people did respond to the gospel by believing it, but... The dominant response in Thessalonica was to reject it. Uh, Let me find my notes. Uh, Take a look there in verse 5. Luke says, uh, but other Jews were jealous. And so they rounded up some bad characters. There you go. You wouldn't want to be known as a bad character. A bad character from the marketplace uh, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Now, we don't know exactly why, but presumably these were Jews uh, who had positions of influence in the synagogue and they saw Paul and his crew as a bit of a threat to their power amongst the people. Uh, So they're jealous. Uh, And so Luke says that this riotous mob full of bad characters uh, rushes to poor old Jason's house uh, in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them uh, uh, out to the crowd. Uh, But when they didn't find them, Uh, They instead dragged Jason and some other believers uh, before the city officials, uh, shouting out, "Uh, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. Now, we don't know lots about Jason in Thessalonica, uh, but presumably he's someone who's a new Christian and he's just trying to do the right thing and be hospitable. He's invited the missionary team into his house, no doubt provided them with some food and a a place to stay. And now he's getting his first taste, really, of what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said there, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. That is why the world hates you. You see, when you become a Christian, the the place of your primary belonging changes. 
You no longer belong primarily to this world and to its people. You belong to Jesus and his people. But that has consequences. It means incredibly, you know, the love and grace and mercy and compassion of Jesus. But you don't always experience those sort of things from the world that you no longer belong to. That's what Jason's experiencing. He no longer belongs to the world. He belongs to Jesus and his people. And so the world, as it were, the people in Thessalonica who are rejecting Jesus and his message, uh, they want to get rid of Jason just as the people got rid of Jesus. So in verse 7, they've dragged Jason before the city officials. And what do they say? They say, uh, these men are defying Caesar's decrees, saying uh, that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, in one sense, that's true, isn't it? Uh, We saw what's Paul saying in the synagogue. There's another king, Jesus, the Messiah, God's king. That's what every Christian in Thessalonica has come to believe. And yet, it's not quite true, is it? Because what sort of king is Jesus? He's not a king who came to start a political revolution that would threaten Caesar's reign and rule as the emperor. Jesus was a king who came to suffer and die at the hands of political power to bring about spiritual liberation, the liberation that all of us are desperate for, that all of us need. So there's a certain truth here, but it's a bit of a distortion of the truth. Yet that's the claim that this mob makes in Thessalonica. So in summary here, you've got the good news of the gospel is proclaimed in Thessalonica. How do people respond? Well, some believe it, but by and large, the response is to reject it. What about in Berea, verses 10 to 15? Uh, Paul and his crew move on to Berea. The response there is to eagerly receive the gospel. Uh, They go again to the synagogue, but the result is very different in verses 10 and 11. Notice verse 11. Uh, Luke says the Berean Jews uh, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Not bad characters, right? Noble characters. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. The Berean Jews are a bit of an exception. I said before, the Jews, overall, they weren't that receptive to the gospel. But in Berea, they were. Very receptive, eagerly receiving the message, examining the Old Testament scriptures for themselves to see if what Paul was saying about Jesus was actually true. And so the result is very different. Look in verse 12. Many of the Jews in Berea believed, not just some, but many as did also a large uh, a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Right, same three groups of people, but more Jews because of how they responded to the good news about Jesus. Uh, but it's not all kind of peaches and cream in Berea. Notice verse 13, the Jews in Thessalonica uh, kind of get wind that Paul and Silas are preaching the same gospel uh, in Berea. And you know, notice these Jews in Thessalonica, they stir up more trouble, more opposition for Paul and his team. Uh, maybe we said, I said this a couple of weeks ago, Pete might have said it last week. I think in the past, uh, some people were quite content with saying, Christianity's for you, it's not for me. I think that's one way to reject the gospel, isn't it? To say, I've just decided personally that Christianity's not for me. But these Jews from Thessalonica want to ramp it up a step from there, don't they? 
It's not enough for them to personally reject the gospel. They want to stamp out Christianity altogether. And that's the nature of kind of real, genuine persecution throughout history. There is a sense of persecution where people try to place limits around the preaching of the gospel. But not really. For example, I don't feel we're being persecuted in Victoria because we're not allowed to preach the gospel in government schools anymore. That's a limit around preaching the gospel. Persecution is when people are making it their aim to stamp out the preaching of the gospel altogether. To stamp out Christianity altogether. And by and large, we haven't seen this sort of persecution in Australia, have we? Although, as Pete got us starting to think about last week, maybe it's not that far away. As you go to your workplace or your class at uni your mother's group, your local cafe, wherever you go, increasingly people see Christianity not just as as being a little bit quaint or outdated, a bit fanciful. They see uh, mainstream Christianity, they see it as dangerous and damaging and harmful, something toxic that our society would be better off to get rid of. Well, that was the nature of these... uh, That's what these uh, Thessalonican Jews thought... They wanted to get rid of Paul and get rid of the message he was preaching. So notice verse 14. Immediately, uh, the new believers sent Paul to the coast, uh, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And now I don't know why this was. I don't think it was because Silas and Timothy were really brave and Paul was chicken and so he he nicked off. Uh, I think it's more likely that Paul was the kind of high-profile preacher had a big presence in the city, it was safer to get him away, and so Paul and Silas could stay in the city and keep encouraging the new Christians. So the good news about Jesus is proclaimed in Berea, and the main response is to eagerly receive the gospel. I wonder if that's you. Maybe you're here today and you've been kind of checking out Jesus for a while, exploring Christianity... Uh, Maybe you're not quite ready to actually become a Christian today, although I'd encourage you to do that. But maybe you are ready to eagerly receive the gospel. By that I mean getting the Bible open, like these Berean Jews, and taking a look at it for yourself to see if what you think it's saying is true. I wonder if you consider doing that. Uh, If you'd like to sit with someone in our church uh, and read through one of the biographies of Jesus' life, perhaps Mark's Gospel, uh, and see if what these Christians are saying about Jesus is true, please come and speak to me or to someone else after church. Uh, We'd love to have that happen. We'd love to help you explore Christianity. Well, in in the rest of the chapter, Paul moves on to Athens Uh, And again, there's a few different responses, uh, but I want to suggest that the main response is that people ridicule the gospel. If you look at verse 16, you'll see Paul's uh, wandering around the city of Athens, uh, and we're told that he's he's greatly distressed. Uh, It's not because he doesn't have his buddies there with Paul and Silas, or he got himself a a bad Greek souvlaki at dinner, and he's kind of, you know, distressed. Sorry, uh, Uh, He's distressed. Why is he distressed? Because the city is full of idols. Full of idols. Which, of course, these idols would have been actual idols. Little carved wooden things or sculpted metal statues of the Greco-Roman gods. 
And so Paul's distress is kind of a spiritual distress, that Athens is full of people who are worshipping and serving these false gods rather than the one true God. And now I wonder, as we walk around, live in the city of Melbourne, I wonder if we notice how full of idols Melbourne is. Uh, not usually these little statues, right? But, but there are a whole bunch of things that people in Melbourne are giving themselves to worshipping and serving. Uh, one for me, sometimes, uh, uh, during the football season, I had, to stop, um, I had to stop watching Melbourne play football because I was so invested in it. I was like, why on earth does this matter so much to me? And it's because in Melbourne, football is very much an idol, isn't it? You know, the MCG uh, is essentially the biggest temple we have in town. And people go to the temple, uh, the players on the field are like the priests who are making all sorts of sacrifices uh, so that all of us together can worship the great god of football. Uh, So there's all sorts of spiritual language around football, and you hear it all the time, the spiritual leader of the club, the, the spirit, the footy gods, you know, like... Football is an idol in Melbourne. Uh, Money is an idol in Melbourne. Uh, Most people I speak to, whether they've got not much money or lots of money, are convinced that the key uh, to having comfort and security and status and power in life is having money and getting more money. Most people are convinced of that, I think. That's why the current cost of living crisis and pressures, it's a really big deal for us because we feel like our idol of money isn't delivering what it promised. It feels more insecure than we anticipated. And you see all sorts of people make their biggest sacrifices at the altar of money. Sacrifice their time, uh, sacrifice maybe some relationships, or I lose this friend or this family member, but hey, that's the cost you have to pay to get ahead in life, right? Maybe sacrificing a little bit of morality or a few principles here and there. Again, sure, you've got to cut a few corners to get ahead. You see how so many people in Melbourne would be worshipping and serving money. I feel this idol in my own heart every time I think, how much do I want to give? Not much. Keep it for myself. But our city's full of idols. I wonder if we notice them. And if we do notice them, I wonder if we're distressed by them in any way. Uh, If you're anything like me, I I suspect that even if you do notice them, uh, you're not that distressed. And if you are distressed, you're probably not so distressed that you'd actually say something about it. Paul's a bit different. He's quite bold, isn't he? Notice what Paul wants to do in Athens from verse 17. He wants to preach the good news of the gospel. He wants to say something. Uh, He spends a short time in the synagogue and then he moves on uh, in verse 17 to the marketplace quite quickly. Uh, If you, incidentally, if you're here and you've studied at La Trobe Uni in the past or you're studying at La Trobe now, uh, you might know that the Greek word uh, for marketplace is agora. If you study at La Trobe, you know that the Agora is the central meeting place of the campus. Uh, in days gone by, I don't know, maybe everyone's online these days, but uh, in days gone by, the Agora was the place where all sorts of ideas were discussed and debated. 
I remember being at the Christian Union table in the Agora uh, and the Islamic Society would be over there and the Socialist Alternative would be over there uh, and the kind of LGBTIQ plus group would be over there and it was just a great place where all sorts of philosophies and ideas were being debated. That's just a little taste of the Agora in Athens. That's what it was like. Uh, So take a look in verse 18. Uh, Luke says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers uh, began to debate with Paul. Uh, Some of them asked, uh, what is this babbler going on about? What is he trying to say? Uh, Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Uh, You can just see a kind of upper class Athenian saying, no, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Anyway, they said this because Paul, what was he doing? He was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So even when Paul's in this really intellectual and philosophical spot, what's he want to do? He wants to tell people about Jesus, what God has done in Jesus, particularly the resurrection. And that's absolutely foreign to these Epicureans and Stoics. Now, I don't want to turn this into a philosophy lecture, uh, but it is kind of useful to know a little bit about why Uh, these guys didn't really kind of vibe with the resurrection. Uh, So the Epicureans, like Epicurus uh, was a Greek philosopher in the 4th century. Uh, He thought that uh, this material world was all there is. Uh, It was made up of little atoms or particles, which maybe he was a bit ahead of his time in that way, not in other ways. Uh, But anyway, uh, Epicurus, and so he thought that when the atoms come together, that brings life. When the atoms separate, that brings death. So what does that mean for the body? It means that when we die and the atoms in our body separate, Epicurus said, no hope of resurrection, no need to fear judgment. So in many ways, the Epicureans were a bit like um, your stereotypical pleasure-seeking secular person today. They said, this life is all there is, and so all you've got to do is suck as much pleasure out of this life as you can. No fear of judgment beyond death. The Stoics, on the other hand, were more like your kind of moralistic, conservative secular people today. They thought life was all about pursuing virtue, living the moral life. It was, of course, not very gracious. It was all about them and their self-determination. But they were on about pursuing the moral life, but there was no idea that that life would go on forever. And certainly no idea that the gods would judge you for your unvirtuous life. So this idea of the resurrection and judgment that Paul's going on about is foreign to them. Aren't they are curious? So what do they do? They take Paul uh, to the centre of Athenian discussion and debate and government. Uh, it's the Areopagus. It's a kind of rocky hill in Athens where the governing uh, council would gather together. Again, the, Athena, uh, the Areopagus, uh, it's all a bit strange to them, but they're curious And they want to be known as people who are open to all the latest ideas. So they let Paul have his say. What does Paul say? Well, he preaches the gospel. First, in verses 22 and 23. Sorry, yeah, verses 22 and 23. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I was walking around and looked carefully uh, at your objects of worship... I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. 
So you are ignorant of the very things that you worship. Uh, And this is what I am uh, going to proclaim to you. You see uh, where Paul starts, he says, I see that you're very spiritual, you're very religious, your city's overflowing with idols. It's almost like you want to cover every spiritual base. And so you've put this God there, the unknown God, just in case you missed one, you see. Every form of spirituality needs to be covered. And Paul says that just goes to show that you're ignorant of all the gods. You don't know any of them. You certainly don't know which one is the true God. So in verses 24 and 25, Paul tells them about the one true God. The God, you'll see there, who doesn't live in a temple made by human hands like these idols. Because in a sense, the whole world is his temple. He's everywhere at once, all the time. And likewise, he doesn't have to be served by human hands, like these idols in Athens that have to be carried from place to place because they're lifeless objects. Not the one true God. He's alive, a living God, a God who doesn't need to be served, but instead serves the world by giving life to everyone and everything. That's the first part of the news that Paul proclaims. There's one true God. And then in verses 26 to 28, Paul says, uh, there's one humanity. The one true God made one humanity. And you might have questions about verses 26 to 28. If you read them closely, uh, it might be tricky to work out how they fit together with your ideas of modern evolution and biology and so on. Can't really go into that. Wanted to acknowledge it. And if you want to talk more about it after church, I'm more than happy to. But Paul's point in these verses, uh, verses 26 to 28, uh, is that from the one man, Adam, uh, the first man made in the image of God, God made every nation on earth. And he put those nations at specific times and with specific boundaries in every part of the world. Why did God do that? Oh, notice verse 27. Paul says God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. You see, God's purpose in putting people in all the different parts of the world, it's so that people from all the different parts of the world would seek after him and reach out for him and find him and know him and know his love and grace and mercy to them in Jesus. That's God's purpose. And as Paul says at the end of verse 27, uh, it's not like the nations have to look very far to find God. Notice the end of verse 27. God is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, if you've got your actual Bible open, you might have a footnote there that says that final quote is from a Stoic poet, a guy named Aratus. So you see something of Paul's strategy here. He's quoting the Athenians' own literature to say, it just makes sense for you guys to believe in the God that I believe in. Because you already believe in a divine being who gives life to everyone and everything. A being who you would say, uh, we are all their offspring. He's the, uh, this divine being has given life to all of us. 
Uh, So in verses 29 to 31, Paul says uh, that this one God who's made one humanity and given life to all of humanity has appointed one man as judge. Notice verse 29, Paul says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. I don't know if you can follow Paul's argument, but he's saying, if you guys believe that we are all God's offspring or the divine being's offspring, and he's saying your own poets say you do, if you believe that, and if you believe that as a human being you're not a lifeless object like an idol made out of silver or gold or bronze or stone, then how can you believe that the divine being, that God, is a lifeless object? Wouldn't the offspring of the God, like if if we're alive, wouldn't the God that made us also be alive? That's what Paul's saying. In the past, uh, Paul says, God overlooked such ignorant ways of thinking about him, thinking that he was a little metal statue and such. Uh, But now, verse 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. This is the response that God wants from the good news of what he has done in Jesus, to repent, which means to change your way of thinking about God, your mindset towards God. To stop uh, giving your life to worshipping and serving the false gods of this world and to worship and serve the one true God that Paul's been speaking about. And this response of repentance is important, it's essential because of verse 31. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the one man he has appointed. He has given proof of this uh, to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see Paul's message? The one God who made one humanity from one man has appointed one man as judge. And that calls for one response, Paul says. The response of repenting and believing in Jesus. Now, at the end of the passage, we see that not everyone in Athens does that. They respond in different ways. Some do believe. Some are eager to know more. But others ridicule the message. Earlier, they've called Paul a babbler. They scoff at the idea of the resurrection. They mock the idea that there would be judgment after death. You see, at its core, Christianity isn't fundamentally about good advice, is it? It's a declaration of news, a declaration of what God has done in Jesus. The one God who made one humanity from one man has appointed one man, Jesus Christ, as judge. And that, Paul says, calls for one response. And not to reject the news like you might do when something bad comes on the news and you turn it off. Not to reject the news not to ridicule the news. Ah, look at that guy over in the States. You know, that's what we do. We just make fun of it. Not to ridicule the news. Not even just to eagerly receive it and not let it change your life, but to repent and believe the good news. Why would you do that? 
Why would you entrust your life to Jesus? Well, because even though he has been appointed as judge, before that he was willing to give his life for you on the cross, to suffer and die, to bear the judgment that you deserve for all your sins, for all your worship of the false gods of this world. Because of his great love for you, he gave his life for you, even though he was God's king. And so if you entrust your life to him, if you repent and believe in him, one day when you die and you face him in judgment, which all of us will, you'll not, you'll not have anything to fear. For the only one who could, could condemn you has given his life for you. So you'll be safe and secure in him. Let me urge you this day to respond to the good news of the gospel by repenting and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, we thank you that the heart of Christianity is not just some advice for us to clean ourselves up, uh, but a wonderful declaration of what you have done in Jesus, your son. And we pray this day for our hearts and minds as we consider how we would respond to this news. Spare us, Father, from rejecting it or hardening our heart to it or ridiculing it. Uh, move us, Father, to repent and to believe in this news that we might find life and forgiveness in knowing Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.